Hey, this is Steve Taylor, and you're listening to my oldest and dearest friend, Ryan Richardson. Ryan T. Richardson, and I studied law in two countries, specializing in entertainment and sports, which then led to work as a manager, as a voiceover artist, as a college professor, and as a social media safety speaker. In short, I run my mouth for a living. I come by it naturally. I grew up with a great conversationalist. My dad could start talking to anyone, anywhere, at any time. It made our family vacations a bit longer sometimes because my dad could start a conversation with somebody in line at an amusement park or sitting at a restaurant. A year after my dad passed on to the next life, I went to lunch with a very good friend of mine. And one of the things he said to me really stood out and I never forgot it. He said, when I talked to your dad, I felt respected and I felt listened to. We find ourselves in what has been called the great pause. In the middle of the great pause, I was asked to sit in on the Cheap Flight podcast. I had a blast. Being a guest on that podcast, I realized there are people in my neighborhood that are doing amazing things. This is one of them. Don't make any noise when the music's playing. I don't like any noise when the music's playing. Jim Dandy, how about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, it's a warm Thursday evening in uh, Canada, uh, and we don't get a lot of warm evenings, so it's kind of nice to have one every once in a while. And uh, just get all, all excited about Monday, to be honest. Oh, is there something happening on Monday? Things. I, that's what I hear. I got I got to notice that uh, that things are going to change in my world, uh, and a lot of memories are going to be uh, brought back up. Um, and not through therapy like normal, oh. um, but a lot of memories are going to come back up on uh, Monday uh, with a big project that you've been working on. So that is extremely exciting news for sure. 
Oh, you might be referring to the Steve Taylor archive on the YouTubes. These on the YouTubes, yes. I I uh, I, I just really discovered. Well, Canada just got YouTube uh, about six months ago, so we're we're new to this game. So seriously, looking, oh, no, I'm kidding. Okay, I was like, what? <laughs> we are we are way behind on on so many things <laughs> on so many things. So yes, I am in, I'm in lovely Windsor, Ontario, and you are where? I am in See the Rabbits, Iowa. Cedar oh, Rapids. very nice. Yes, we, it's Cedar Rapids, but everyone calls it See the Rapids. See the Rapids is that is is that wasn't there a movie called Cedar Rapids? There was a movie with Ed Helms called Cedar Ed Helms. Rapids. Yes. I own it. Yes, I yes. love that movie. The sales uh, convention. Yes, the yes yeah. with uh, what is it? John C. Riley. John C. Riley. Yes, yeah, that is that is a good movie. So Cedar, so you you live in actual Cedar Rapids? I do live in actual Cedar Rapids. If that is that is exciting. We can just talk about that because I, I do love that film. If you come to Cedar Rapids and you, it depends on what day. We call it the City of Five Seasons, but really it's the City of Five Smells. And <laughs> it just truly depends on what day it is because some days the entire city smells like crunch berries because the Quaker Oats factory is here. And it's like, oh my God, I'm in Oh a, my goodness. It's like I'm in a giant bowl of Captain Crunch out here. It's amazing. And then other days, the wind is blowing from the east and it smells like Purina dog food. And <laughs> other days it smells like Progresso soup because there's a Progresso factory here. It's, yeah. It's oh my gosh. That Except for the dog food, that sounds like the perfect place. Well, Unless you have a dog, then that's fantastic. Well, the soup actually is a lot more overbearing than you would think. Like imagine broccoli cheese soup, but instead of it just being something you smell in the kitchen, it's what you're breathing into your lungs. It's huh. It's not the greatest. What's interesting is that I actually have a box of Captain Crunch sitting next to me right now in my office. <laughs> the reason it's in my office is because it was on sale at the store when I went shopping on the weekend, and I grabbed three boxes because it was a really good deal. But I don't leave them in the kitchen uh, because we have adult children and uh, and a wife that kind of frowns every time I have Captain Crunch as an adult. Uh, eating Captain Crunch in the uh, kitchen, so it stays in the office and comes out for breakfast, then goes back away. Um, I don't, I don't have to hide too many things, but I do have to hide the Captain Crunch, well, and it's and it's it's Captain. No, it, yes, it is. Yes, I've heard some people say Captain. It's not Captain. No, Captain. It's, it's apostrophe and absolutely, absolutely. So, so there's actually a Captain Crunch factory near you. Well, it's not just Captain Crunch. It's just the Quaker Oats factory. I mean, well, <laughs> sure. There's other things too, and the and the you know the oatmeal that I eat every other day, which I love as well, instant oatmeal. But I got to tell you, as far as I was concerned, it's a Captain Crunch. They and they make the Crunch Berries right there, and 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 wow, it it sounds magical already. There is an incredibly strong chance that the box of Captain Crunch that you are sitting next to is manufactured maybe three or four miles up the road from my house i'm gonna have to look uh, unless there's a canadian one i you you're probably right considering how close to the border you are i think yeah, yeah. i'm pretty sure they ship just across the border <laughs> and i've got to tell you i live near a magical city called detroit and part <laughs> of the reason that it's magical uh partially because of the history of the city and the, the beautiful structures and everything and the way it's coming back to life again but one of the things about the city of detroit is that is also the home of third man records which oh, yeah. is a the vinyl pressing plant is here and so i when i before covid um, when I could cross the border, I would go to there every probably two months and sometimes just hang out and oh. uh, watch vinyl being pressed, which is 
a very cool thing. So, so yes, I, I could, I could certainly understand being close to a magical place because you live near the Quaker factory, uh, AKA the Captain Crunch headquarters of the world. That's right. Wow. Wow. Boy, I, I was already sold on Cedar Rapids because of the film, but now uh, it's on my list of places to visit. Well, there's only like two shots in that movie that are actually in Cedar Rapids. There's there's one <laughs> yeah. shot where there's a pan shot where they're driving through downtown. And then there's a scene where Anne Haish and Ed Helms are sitting by the Cedar River. And there's this weird looking metal tree. And that's the five seasons tree. And those are the only two shots in the film that are actually in Cedar Rapids. Wow. Okay. I, I, maybe I don't like it as much as I did then because I just assumed it was all... You're going to tell me that there are films in Hollywood that aren't actually shot, you know, in the locations that they're set in? Believe it or not, that is in oh, fact the case. Guy. Oh, I know. wow. My whole belief structure has just gone out the window. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Blue Like Jazz was shot in Portland, right? I believe most of it was, except for okay. most of it that was in Nashville. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're just deconstructed half of my life just in the next, oh my goodness, real movies don't really always take place in the place that they're set. I know. It's shocking. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How can I go on? I I don't even know. But The Second Chance was shot in Nashville. I know that. Yes, it certainly was. Okay, good. All right. Okay. It's been restored. Oh, yes. There you go. So tell me about how... How you so you you uh, have a, a great connection with Steve Taylor, who is uh, uh, somebody that we my first cassette that I paid for with my own money was the Meltdown remixes. Oh, very and nice. and I don't think I even knew. I think I listened to it in the store when they used to have listening stations in stores. Mm-hmm. And I said I like this, and it's and plus it's got a remix, which I didn't even know that there was a Christian album that would have a remix on it, which I thought was cool. And so I remember picking that up, and that was that was the beginning of my uh, obsession, beginning of my uh, fandom, for sure. So how when was your beginning? Uh, my beginning, if you're going to put an actual date on it, would probably be sometime in. I don't know, mid-1989, I was a very young child. My very first memory in life is asking my dad to put I want to be a clone on the stereo for me before he went to work. (laughs) My parents got married when they were very young. They were 19, and they had had me a year and two months later. I've been trained to say that. Good, 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 good uh, calendar, uh, calendarizing. That's right. And then because they were married so young, they were rather poor so when they would go buy music they couldn't really afford the full priced albums and they were in the record store and they saw clone in the five dollar bin and my mom thought it was an interesting cover so she bought it and she was really into like the punk new wave sound and as a kid you know my dad was listening to michael w smith and dallas home and praise and you know a whole bunch of stuff that really never struck a chord with me but steve taylor was just unlike anything I had heard, partly because of how limited I was uh, in my exposure to other kinds of music. But then once I started to hear other music outside the home, it was still like, no, this is really good stuff. Okay. And then I wrote to Steve when I was in kindergarten, which would have been 91, which would have been the Chagall days. And he wrote me a letter back and said that he wanted to meet me. And then we opened up a correspondence that has grown and continues to this day. That's, That's amazing. Yeah. That is that is awesome. 
that you'd write a letter, you know, pre-internet, of course. For sure. That you would write a letter to a musician and the musician would write you back uh, a handwritten note and, you know, acknowledging that that you uh, are a fan and appreciative of, of uh, your, your fandom. That's pretty amazing. I, I should clarify. Because it's my... easy it's easy to do now, right? Email. Oh yeah. You easily sit down with an email and just send it out and you and you you can connect with all of your fans all at once through your Absolutely. Facebook page or through your Instagram or whatever. But to have done that in the early nineties took effort. Oh yeah. I, I should clarify I was in kindergarten, so my mother actually transcribed the note for me. Okay, uh, right, right. But uh, yeah, the fact that Steve would even write back to a a little kid and not just write back, but say, hey, I want to meet this guy. That's that's pretty life-altering when you're that young. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's it's so it's seemingly out of reach. Right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Because I know, just like you said, I, I know, I, I um, we just, Bill Withers passed this year, mm-hmm. uh, phenomenal songwriter. And my parents played his record over and over again when I was one and two years old. And I <laughs> I sang along with that. I still do. Uh, it was the Still Bill record, and it's just amazing how how sometimes if if you include, uh, and I understand this more as a parent now. If I include my musical experiences, my musical tastes, and introduce them to my kids, that my kids will have a kind of a different take on it, and they'll remember it many many years later, and and have their own opinions of what they liked and what they didn't like about it. Uh, but I, I definitely remember. Um, I, I remember shedding a tear or two. I didn't know Bill Withers, never met him, but it was so much a part of my childhood that um, it it just I had an emotional reaction to to his passing. I, I hate to think about what's going to happen to me whenever Steve passes, but you know his dad. I don't think he, don't think he ever will, though. So that's right. great. His dad is ninety three and still in great health. So yeah, yeah, that, that's a pretty and, good. And, and I was at, just speaking of, and again, we don't want to talk of Steve's passing, but I was at uh, Cornerstone in 91. It was my first trip to the Cornerstone Festival, and Chagall played. And there was a easily two-minute, and you've probably seen this already, a two-minute or more time when Steve was laid flat on the floor of the stage and not moving. Yes. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness. It, I, don't, I don't want to be there when he... Past that, because <laughs> so he because he, he did one of his his famous face plants. Yes, like just straight from his <laughs> height, <laughs> all the way down to the floor, and then he didn't move for a long. It it it, it might have been thirty seconds, but it sure felt like an hour that he didn't move. And I remember thinking, "Oh my goodness, this isn't good." Well, that this was is, this isn't good. Well, that's during the solo on Monkey Grinder, which is a rather lengthy solo. So uh, there's, there's no doubt that it definitely felt like a long time. Yes, it was Monkey Grinder. That's right. That's right. It, it felt like forever when you were in, in that heat. And I was already delirious and, <laughs> and dehydrated. So that didn't help. But I, I, there was a long period of time where I thought, oh, my goodness. I, I, I think I may have witnessed his passing. That's not good. That's not good. That's not good. No. <laughs> And then, of course, years later, uh, and I don't know if you've got a copy of this. They they did the um, they did the tribute live in Nashville at GMA the year I Predict the Clone came out. Yes, and there's an invite uh, to that that was done on red paper, and it was the image was Steve sitting on a gravestone. Oh, yeah. Because and I think and I think it was partially because he kept touting MCA is the musician cemetery of America at that point. 
But it was because it was a tribute to them. The, the tie-in that they had, it was a it was a joint event. It was really cool with Warner Alliance and REX, and and the idea was they're doing a tribute to him. So he must have passed on to the next life or something. It was, it was kind of a morbid kind of thing. And of course he was there and played, but I, I don't, I will have to get that to you. I have it. I have a digital copy of that, that I will I, definitely give you. Yes, please do. Cause I don't have that. And this is the one thing that actually shocks me is that there's something that I might have from the Steve Taylor archives that you don't have yet. I, I I'm on the floor myself. Like Steve Taylor was at Cornerstone. <laughs> Because from, I mean, this is the first time you and I have actually talked, but we've known each other for years. Yes. And communicated back and forth off and on, you know, at least a couple of times over, over several years, because you had footage from that show Yes, and uh, you posted that on YouTube and I was forever grateful for that for sure. Oh, well, you're welcome. So how did you, how did you, the Steve Taylor archive releases on Monday. We're going to say that several times during this podcast to make sure that you go to the YouTube page to check that out. How did you start building this archive? Well, it started from, I mean, a really young age. I've always been somebody that if a particular story or an artist or an author strikes me, I like to learn everything I can about that person. Hmm. Um, And I like to have every single work that they have, uh, that they've done. So I would find, you know, a Steve Taylor recording that was new to me and I would keep it. And then as I got really into high school and the internet became a thing, I was able to connect with other Steve Taylor fans online. And Mm -hmm. some of them were like, uh, he's probably never going to do anything again. I have this old recording. Do you want it? Yes, I do. Please send it my way. And it just built from there. And then, you know, getting to know Steve over the years, every now and again, he would send me a piece or something, or he would tell me a story, which would then send me out on the trail trying to find a specific piece. (laughs) Right. Like a, like a, like a Nicholas Cage and national treasure. Yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Only there was no map on the back of the declaration of independence. (laughs) So it just, it got to a point where I had so much stuff, be it, either, you know, archived concerts or, you know, videos, cassettes, recordings, eight track tapes, right. Flyers, posters, everything. I knew at some point that I couldn't just leave it sitting in my basement and, and just where, do where, where moth and rust destroy. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it was humidity controlled. So the tapes weren't decaying or anything, but it good, just, good. it needed to be, put out there at some point. And right, yeah. I just never really knew when or where. So I decided when COVID-19 hit, I was in the fortunate position of not having to work and still was getting paid. I was like, you know, the, the timing is just right for me right, to do yeah. this. Yeah. And so I contacted Steve and I was like, Steve, this is what I'm doing. Here's a list of everything that I've got. I know you know I have some of this, some of this. I know you don't have any clue that I've got are you okay with this? And he sent me a note back and was like, I, this is a great idea. I'm all in, let's do it. And then at the same time, I was like, you know, I've also always wanted to gather the oral history of Chagall Guevara because uh-huh. right. as big of a Steve Taylor fan as I am, Chagall is for me, my favorite period. Yeah. yeah. And so I just started putting feelers out to a lot of the guys in the band that fortunately just through my connection with Steve, I've been able to make contact with in the past. And I got to sit down and interview almost everybody 
that I had on my list. And I decided, you know, I should probably put this stuff out too, because other people are going to want to hear this. And then while I was in the middle of these interviews, I was talking to Steve and he said, Hey, give me your address. Uh, let me send you some stuff. And then a 31 pound box showed up at my door <laughs> a couple of weeks later. Some stuff. And it, yeah, it was an absolute treasure trove. I <laughs> It's I like, it's like some band, some stuff. Let me just right. send you some stuff to which you would think, Oh, it's going to be some leaflets, maybe a couple tapes. And you yeah. get a 31 pound box. I just, I opened it up and it was like, you know, you see on cartoons, they open up a box and like a glowing light comes down. It's Christmas. Yeah, pretty much. I was, could not believe the stuff that was in there. And I was like, I'm like, and one of the tapes I looked at, it was a vocal lesson that he did in the early part of 1985 with the guy who's now like Lady Gaga's vocal coach. And I'm like, Oh wow. I'm like, do you really want this stuff out there? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I sent him a message and I was like, are you aware of what you sent me here? Cause <laughs> did you mean to send this? There, right. Th- there's some stuff here that I don't know. And he's basically had the opinion that, uh, listen, I'm going to trust your judgment and right. any, yep. and any embarrassment that might come will be completely and totally squished by the fact that somebody's actually taking the time to do this. And that gives me so much gratitude. So, so it's just been pretty much nonstop for the past month and a half, just digitizing videos and audio recordings directly from soundboard from concerts in the early, early clone days and right. Right. All kinds of stuff. I think, I think maturity and I've heard about it. I don't know much about maturity yet, but I think maturity allows people sometimes to say, here it is. Here's good, the bad, everything in between. Here's, here's, uh, you know, um, here's, here's my product. Here's my artistry and just enjoy it. Right. For, for all it's worth, because I was talking to, it was funny. I, 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 I worked with the insiders, uh, based in Detroit, they're a Detroit ska band. And they had one of the, one of the cool things of the many things they did was they were on squint records and yes. they released an album called Scalaluya. Uh, that uh, that was put out through Squint, and it was it was a great partnership. It still is. It was awesome. So I, t- I was talking to Joe, the lead singer, and I had the other guys in the band on the call with me. And Joe, I've heard other interviews with Joe, and Joe says I can't listen to anything I did from almost anything we recorded except for the last two albums that we did independently. He said I'm so embarrassed by what I put out, and he said and and. I'm embarrassed by what I put out. I don't want to listen to it again. And the guys in the band that were on the call with me started talking about how that's like your high school yearbook. And no, nobody wants to go back and look at their high school yearbook. But if you didn't do that, then you wouldn't have gotten here and you couldn't have gotten to the next step. And by the end, <laughs> Joe was convinced. He said, I'm going to go back and listen to our old stuff again. Like it was like therapy we had for about an hour and a half <laughs> because he started off. And again, he's been very vocal about, I'm just embarrassed by the early stuff we did because at 17, what did I know? And then he, by the end, he was back to you know i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna give that another shot and listen to it with different ears and i thought wow this is this was kind of like an intervention but in the same way maturity kind of brought him to that point and and almost like it sounds like again i'm speculating with steve is like hey this is who i am this is how these are my beginnings and this is where it took me and i'm just gonna leave it all open for you everybody to see I hope that that's what's happening. And I really hope that it's not a situation where in a moment of just delirious joy after an enthralling three hour conversation with me, he just just threw caution to the wind and sent me a whole bunch of stuff. And then it's going to get out. He's going to go, Ooh, (laughs) you know what? Uh, 
no, whatever, whatever got the stuff, the, the box delivered to your house is good enough for me. I, I, I got to tell you. It's yeah, I am completely and totally okay with it. And, uh, it is nice to know that even if he says no, nobody else can have it. It, it is selfishly nice to know that I have it. That's right. And you've got some gems in there from what it sounds like. I have some absolutely hilariously bad, just horrendous early material. I have mm-hmm. some great, great recordings from the Fritz era. I have uh, the entire Fritz demo tape, which is okay. some some of those songs. He's not even singing words. He's just sort of mumbling uh, the melody. Got it. And I've got rough mixes from the Fritz era. I've got a few demos from the Squint era and countless live concert recordings directly from the soundboard. And I got to say, I'm really surprised at the quality that some of these tapes still have contained within them. I mean, the sound, many of them are 25 years and older, right? Most of the cassette tapes, like the audio cassette tapes are approaching 40 years old and they still sound really good. Wow. Yeah. I've been doing a little bit of, you know, clean up just to kind of remove some of the tapist. But other than that, it's been surprising how, how, how well these things have held up over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But there's some, there's definitely some things in there that I think people are going to really kind of have their draw. Excuse me. There's going to be some things in there that people are going to really have their jaw kind of drop and hit the floor when they see it, because it's stuff that I didn't even realize was in existence. Right. Yeah. Like, like, the Chagall Guevara Cornerstone performance professionally shot. The Chagall Greenbelt performance professionally shot. Uh, several Chagall shows from when they were kind of getting their feet wet, getting, as Steve called it, their road donk. Right. Yeah. Going around just getting getting their set ready to go. And it's just raw and it's beautiful. And when that, would that some of that even have been before they signed with MCA? There is one show that is from before the album came out, but they had signed by that point. They actually signed with MCA relatively quickly. They got right, a yeah. they they got a record offer after their second gig, and uh, I think the process of signing with MCA was uh, it was an interesting one. The, mm. the story of that will be coming to the Steve Taylor archive. Wow, really? Yeah. The story the story of how they signed to MCA is going to be part of the archive. Yes, the entire. Chagall's story is being documented through my series of oral history interviews. I mean, I've talked to Matt Wallace, who was the co-producer on that record, and Lynn Nichols, who was the head of Murr Records before he went and did the Chagall thing. So right, yeah. he was really the guy who took care of the business side of you know interacting directly with the record labels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. So he had some great insights as to exactly what happened with MCA, how everything fell apart with them, right. and- uh, and then Steve, of course, had his own opinions on everything. It's just been a, a very fascinating journey to get to hear not just the skeleton of the story that everybody knows, but the mitochondrial DNA. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it is, uh, in retrospect, because I, I look at it from, you know, from working in entertainment law and working with bands, I remember how busy I was pre-2000. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and then Napster came along and mm-hmm. that, that was a paradigm shift on many levels, changed a whole lot of things. But what Napster really exposed, in my humble opinion, was how few people in the music business really knew what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> like it, really, it really made it very clear that, oh, my gosh, everybody's just scrambling around trying to figure out what to do now. Uh, and anything that really happened 
in the overall music industry was luck uh, and, Absolutely. and t- luck and timing. Yep. And so I, I have my own kind of speculation on what happened uh, with MCA and all that kind of stuff, but I have nothing to base it on except having seen bands go through the same levels of disappointment, A&R people leaving, uh, you know, no loyalty, uh, promises broken. I've seen that over the years and years and years of working with artists, but I don't know specifically about the MCA situation, but I really look forward to hearing that. Well, I won't spoil the whole thing, but I, I will tell you that it was a combination of factors in chiefly among them as Chagall's album was getting ready to be released MCA was sold to a Japanese company Uh and that Japanese company came in and they did what just about every company that buys out another company does, which is get rid of all the people that were there and bring their own folks in. Right. And so all the people that had brought Chagall on board and were their champions were let go right before their album came out. And then Chagall kind of shot themselves in the foot by not touring in the U S and there's, that's covered in the interviews as well. There's a whole other story with that, but uh, right. Right. And and again, I know, from different accounts, they had legal representation, certainly to enter a contract with MCA. Uh, and what I found in the industry in general is there were a lot of artists that signed papers that had no clue what they were signing and hadn't really even either couldn't feel, didn't feel like they were, could afford legal counsel. Uh, and that's, that's where I was so busy because I was either putting out fires uh, for contracts that artists had, had already signed, or I was advising clients uh, either not to sign deals based on the information they had. But if anything, I felt like I served clients by reviewing the contracts before they actually, you know, did that or jumped into something. But, but I know the feeling of being, of having an artist that's so optimistic and this is, this is, this is going to take us to the next level. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen that kind of dis- dissolve. Absolutely. It's, it's very painful. It's very, the realization is extremely painful for sure. And uh, no, from so from a legal business side, I look forward to again. It's been so many years now. Hopefully, the the uh, the pain of it has subsided. Oh, go ahead. And you would know about that, yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, a long time ago, I had the idea of doing a documentary on Chagall, and that may actually wind up happening after all this is over and done with just because there's just so much information there that I think I've actually got enough to build a story around it. Yeah. But when I talked to the guys in the band about their time in Chagall, this was probably 15 years after the band split, Mm -hmm. even though it had been a long time since then, they really weren't open yet to talking about all the minor details, but I think enough time has passed that they, they've been incredibly candid and it's, really opened up a lot of interesting points that I didn't realize were there. And I think too, I think from a fan standpoint, there was a, there was a kind of a, we're so sorry this didn't, it wasn't, we were so sorry this didn't work out the way you thought it was going to. I remember that sentiment from multiple fans, the idea of like, we're in this with you, we're pushing for you. We're out there buying the record as soon as we could get it. Uh, And we're sorry that it didn't pan out the way that you had anticipated or hoped that it would. I remember that that sentiment kind of around those years as well from fans. I know for me as a fan, I was just upset that there wasn't another record because I just loved sure. it. Yeah. yeah, I was so young at the time; I wasn't uh, I wasn't really aware of the intricacies that go into what makes a band break. I just couldn't understand why this band that did this awesome record didn't do another one. Right, right. 
and and certainly from a fan standpoint too, we weren't disappointed. We weren't disappointed in them. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. We weren't disappointed by the machine, but we weren't necessarily disappointed by the band. And I don't even know if the band really fully understand that because they had taken such a leap and we were all going to go with them. And uh, I, I hope that the, the band this many years later understands that the band, the fans, the really core fans were not disappointed in, in them during those years, because that certainly wasn't the case. You know, I think when you get a chance to watch these interviews, I'm really wondering if the perspective on that might change a little bit because the contradictions between what Chagall set out to do and what they actually wound up doing were mm-hmm. incredibly stark. You know, right. they, they, they were very adamant about, we are not going to be a CCM band. We do not want to be in that world. And exactly. Then they, yeah. And then they played Cornerstone and Greenville. They said that, you know, we're going to give up everything. We're going to put all of our eggs in this basket and we're going to hit the road and we're going to make it as a band. And they did that initially to get signed. But then once the album was out and it came time to actually tour, for a lot of reasons that are, that are going to be covered in the interviews, mm. they didn't do it. And they had, a, I mean, they were booked on a tour with Jeff Healy. I don't know if you remember that guy. Fine Canadian Jeff Healy. Oh yes. Yes, yes I do. They I, were, <laughs> they were booked to tour with Jeff Healy and, really? and they, yeah, they sold tickets with Jeff Healy with special guest Chagall Guevara. You can still find the ticket stubs online every now and again. Really? Yes. But they, okay, so, yeah. so during those years, I uh-huh. actually, I actually did a, a an agreement for Jeff Healy, oh. uh, where he was in he was going to represent a charity, uh, and again another Steve connection. Uh, so he was going to represent a charity, and they asked me to draft the contract because they knew I would, my background and, and interest was entertainment law, the firm I was at. So I drafted this contract for him to represent a charity, but I had to then send it to uh, I had to find somebody who could translate it into Braille. Oh, yeah, yeah. The only time I've ever had to do that in my career, I, I found a, a, a person to translate into the Braille so that uh, Jeff could read it and his attorneys could read it. So, But yeah. But I, didn't, I did not know that there was a Chagall-Jeff Healy connect, connection at all. They were going to be opening for him in the, I believe, the, the fall of 1991 and then again in the spring of 1992. And I won't uh, reveal all the details here, but... Right, they, right. We'll hear but, on the archive. But basically they... They backed out, and then their management company, and rightly so, stopped looking for good gigs to give them. And they they wow. spent most of 1992 kind of kicking the tires of other record companies, and yeah. and that was all contingent on them getting out of their deal with MCA. And MCA wouldn't let them go for the longest time. And by the time they finally did get out of their MCA deal, Steve had already signed with Warner Brothers and was hmm. doing the squint thing. Right. A lot going on. A lot going on, yes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So we're going to get all those all those Chagall stories uh, staggered over time through the Steve Taylor archive on YouTube. Absolutely. It's going to be something where I think I'm going to try and release things kind of chronologically to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I'm also going to try and release things by group. So when I release the Chagall stuff, it's going to be almost all the Chagall stuff right at one time. Mm-hmm. When I do the early '80s stuff, it'll be all the early '80s stuff. Okay. Yep. So it'll have it'll have a, cool, a very cool structure to it. I hope so. I mean, yeah. if nothing else, even if it is 
a, a situation where it winds up being put up in sort of a random order, at least it's going to be up there. And there is some great stuff in here that I think hardcore fans are really going to appreciate. Some behind-the-scenes footage from Limelight, the film. Mm-hmm. Steve Taylor practicing his dancing for the Sock Heaven video. In some that, we've, that we've got to see. It is amazing. <laughs> uh, and just, you know, random interview footage and, you know, old episodes of CCM TV that Steve hosted. Nice. Oh, very cool. No, it is. It. I think... There's also uh, his signing to Warner Alliance and the announcement of that, if I yes. understand. Yes. That and is, it, That is very cool. It is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. I had heard the story, but I'd never seen the video, and it was amazing. I still have the – because I was doing radio at the time, uh, I still have the marketing plan, uh, which was the full poster on the one side. And then yes. every month, here's what's going to happen. Yes. And and the role of, of that – that uh, campaign uh, by Chris Hauser is still legendary. Like I, I actually I held on to it for many reasons, but because I work with bands, it is my template. Now, I, there's no way we're going to hit most of the things that were on that list because a lot of the uh, the magazines in that aren't even around anymore. <laughs> for sure. But that that breakdown of how we're going to roll this campaign out was so cool was so cool it was it was uh from a from a business standpoint and again i was just moving into management at that point it was nice to have a template that says this is if it rolls out ideally this is how what it's going to happen and i thought that was i thought that was incredible i thought that was incredible because i remember getting again i was doing radio i didn't have a tv show but i was getting all the video promo uh i remember getting a teaser video i think it was maybe september and it just showed you a little bit of the movies from the soundtrack. Stuff. Yep. It was probably a two minute clip and it was so electric. That's the only way I can describe it. It was just like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And it was squint. It still holds up, still delivered. But I, re- I remembered getting all those promos, you know, staggered out over time. And, and every time, and I, and I must've watched that clip. Oh, 150 times. Well, on a videotape that I had to keep rewinding. I was going to say, well, <laughs> that's actually in my box of stuff. The, is it? The squint, pre, the squint uh, teaser promos are in there. So it yeah. is something you'll get to see again. And this time, all you have to do is just hit the little circle back around button. <laughs> that is a beautiful thing because I'm pretty sure I wore out at least two VCRs, uh, <laughs> which were very expensive at the time. But I had to keep rewinding two minutes. Okay, let's watch this again. Okay, let's watch this again because it was it was shot so well. It was yep. it was it was so rock and roll. That's you know, electric and rock and roll were the two things that that certainly came into play. And then you- to get the full the full, you know, the videography of all the songs from that album was it still it still holds up. I really you know, there's a lot of things from that era that do not hold up years yep. later. But uh, the way the way all those campaigns rolled out, and uh, you know, maybe not the stuff that we're we're gonna see, but most of it most of it still holds up, which is quite a thing to say. I think that's one of the reasons why I've always been drawn to Steve. Yeah, you can hear something that he recorded in 1983, and you can tell it's from 1983. But compare it to the other stuff that was coming out yeah. in that era, and it, especially in the world that he was working in. And it is, it's way above anything that you, that you would have expected coming out of that market at that time. 
and, and in the context, it's it's hard to believe that he was signed. Like you really, like somebody yeah. had, like Billy Ray Hearn had a, had a vision clearly that nobody else could understand. Well, do you know how he got signed? I know. Tell me more. I know some of it. Well, the way that Steve got signed, he was booked to do Cam Floria's Estes Park Music Conference. Okay. He had a two-song set. This would have been in the summer of, I believe, 82. Mm -hmm. And his buddy, Jim Chafee, brought down a whole bunch of kids and basically said, when Steve comes out, you (laughs) you have to act like this is the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Right. Yeah. And just absolutely went bananas. And then that got Billy Ray and Hearn excited because anybody <laughs> who anybody who knew Billy Ray knows great man. But boy, did that guy like making money? Yes, <laughs> yes, and he was really good at it. Oh, he was. And yeah, so and the he, teens and seeing the teens get excited about a band. Yeah, oh yeah, I, and yeah. And then he signed Steve to a contract, and originally Clone was only going to have five songs on it, but uh, they had a little bit of money left over, so they wound up putting written guarantee on there. Well, written guarantee would not have necessarily been on that. I did not know that. Yes. Can you play racquetball, squash, and volleyball, relax in a spacious health bar, or work out in the gym, and pay nothing over and above your membership fees? Okay, so there are many places that offer a similar deal, but where can you do all those things at a cost of only $22 monthly membership? Only one place, the Phoenix Racquet Club. But that's not all. The Phoenix Racquet Club also offers aerobic fitness, relaxer size, men's fitness, gourmet cooking classes, and more. Available to members and 
non-members. Look into the Phoenix Racquet Club and all it has to offer. Get into the Racquet Racket, and at only $22 monthly membership fees, you could give a Christmas gift of fitness. Next door, relax in Ruby Begonia's Restaurant and Lounge, offering quality, freshly prepared home-cooked food at remarkably low prices for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Inexpensive meals with mouth-watering, thick, fruity, crumbly pies you can eat in or take home. Ruby Begonia's Restaurant and the Phoenix Racket Club, easy to find at 99th Street and White Mud Freeway. Hey, this is Steve Taylor, and I'd like to request Bannerman. And if you don't have that, I'll take anything by Gordon Lightfoot. like at every point there was there was a need to convince the rest of the label that we need to keep we need to stay in the steve taylor business it, it, it seems like that's the narrative i was reading all the magazines at the time and i remember the narrative being all right here's i predict okay we're not putting that out who's gonna put that out <laughs> it's, it's got to get out and but who's gonna do it i don't know if we can i don't know if we can go there i don't know if we can go there i think there i think there were a lot of discussions behind closed doors that i started with I don't think we can keep going with this. One of the things that I didn't realize at the time was part of the reason why Sparrow didn't put out I Predict 1990 was because they ran into some severe financial problems. Right, yes. And like for years, you know, I think the majority of fans that would care about such things thought that it was just because they thought this record was too controversial or mm -hmm, whatever. Mm -hmm. And really, it was just too expensive. Right. And there is a, there's actually a great video that Steve sent me from when he signed with Murr and it's sort of an introduction to Steve Taylor, to the people over at Murr records. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's hilarious. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited for people to be able to see that. I've never seen that. I know that it's got, it actually, it had, um, this is probably something you can cut out, but this is a, I couldn't believe, you know, the old clone club newsletter. Yes. And you know how the the clone guys that would kind of be in the corner, like the just the, the picture, the three figures, the three figures. Yeah, yeah. That picture was drawn by Lynn Nichols. That's a self portrait of Lynn Nichols. Really? Yes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I had no idea. And so that was that. Did that debut on around? I predict. No, that was uh, that was probably was say, that's from the beginning. I think. Yeah, yeah, that was probably from eighty four, probably around okay. meltdown yeah, era. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and was Lynn was Lynn part of the band? Was Lynn? No, Lynn. Yeah, no. Lynn actually brokered the deal to get Steve from Sparrow to Murr. Got it. Okay. And then 
Dave Perkins, of course, was the co-producer on I Predict 1990. Right. Yep. Mike Mead did some percussion on that album as well. And that's, that's right. That's sort of how Chagall kind of came to be. The genesis of the band started with that record. Yeah. Okay. I do remember. Yes. I remember. I remember all those connections kind of happening at the same time. Wow. Yeah, and I didn't see the so I I knew Lynn's name because I just like you I read the credits and when when you had albums with credits, I knew who played on whose album. I knew which you know it, it was it was I was the IMDb of music, in <laughs> and it was all in my head. But I knew Lynn Nichols when I saw Lynn Nichols was part of Chagall. I went, oh yeah, Lynn Nichols produced. Uh, is it Murr? And uh, he helped uh, with Phil Keggy's. Uh, which album was that? The big, the, one of the, the Sunday's this, Child. Yeah, I was going to say, Sunday's Child, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I knew the name. It wasn't like, oh, there's these people I've never heard of that are in Chagall. I'm like, oh, Dave Perkins. Yeah, he was the Innocence. He did the Innocence. He was, he produced, co-produced, I predict. Uh, I see the connection there. Lynn was involved with Phil Keggy and all that kind of stuff. And they, they you know, at Murr. So yeah, when, when, the only, I think the only name I didn't know was Wade Janes. And Wade has been the only person in Chagall that I have not been able to track down in any way. Sure, yeah. Wade was an engineer out in California. He's mm -hmm. the only guy in the band who was originally from Nashville. But okay. he was he was an engineer when they found him. And then after Chagall, he played with Steve for a while. And right, then he, yeah. He toured with Cowboy Junkies for a little bit. And then mm -hmm. after that, he went and became a chef. And then he moved to Phoenix for a little while. And I knew... I think at one point he was like working a factory job and now he's a bit of a recluse. Like even the guys in Chagall can't really get a hold of him. So right. Wow. That's unfortunate because he's a killer bass player. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I, I saw them. I saw him with Steve after on the squint tour or on the, not, not the squint tour, but the, the cornerstone, whatever the cornerstone was that. Well, oh, he uh, played, he 94? was, uh, yeah, he played a 94 with it. He was on the squint tour. Was he? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. He played bass on that album. Okay. I went to a couple shows on that tour. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is. It's so funny. As, as I was joking about my, you know, the, earlier I was saying that I almost changed the name of my podcast, The Six Degrees of Steve Taylor, <laughs> when I was talking to Hocus Pick and Hocus Pick saying, oh, yeah, when we were on the Squint tour and they tell great stories about the being on the road with Steve Taylor and Guardian. And then I'm talking to the insiders and they're like, oh, yeah, when we were at, in the studio with Steve. And it's like, oh, my goodness. I think every, I think every artist that I talk to, is less than six degrees of separation from Steve Taylor. So I had to really, really think about changing the name of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about Steve is, you know, if you, I don't know that many artists that are from the world that he is in that have as many connections and as diverse of a set of interests when it comes to music as he does. Right. Yep. You know, you, you meet so many people in that CCM world and it is – CCM is all they know. Right. Yes. But but when I talk to Steve, he'll tell me, you know, what he's listening to and almost none of it is ever CCM. Right. And it's and it's not it's not that he's going out of his way to avoid it. It's just he's just drawn to to quality. Yes. And it's and it's something to be said too for somebody, you know, it's, it'd be hard pressed to find a lot of people that worked in the CCM industry for a long period of time that people still speak well of. Oh yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of hurts to say that, but it's true that, you know, if you can find somebody that people are still saying good things about, 
uh, that's a big deal. And Steve is definitely in a, it's rarefied air. There's, there's very, very few people that don't speak of Steve in very high esteem, you know, um, certainly through the interviews I've done over the last couple of months, but in, in life in general, uh, business dealing wise and, and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, it's, if you can find somebody that people still speak well of years later, that's a beautiful thing. I think one of the things that has been the most interesting to me through all the Chagall interviews that I've done and just through digging through all of these archival pieces that I've got is it just completely and totally reinforces my belief that Steve, and I want to be careful uh, how I say this, Mm -hmm. but Steve, I don't think ever really belonged in the CCM world truly. Yeah. You know, he really, I think that's part of why I'm so drawn to the Chagall project because it's Steve Taylor with the chains unhooked. Right. So to speak. Yep. Yep. And and when you talk about integrity. The training wheels off. Yes. Which they were always off period. Right. But even even more so to have yeah, to have the to have the restraints lifted. You're right. You're and right. When, when I was interviewing Matt Wallace, who was the co producer of the Chagall record, mm-hmm. you talk about the integrity. He just absolutely glowed and raved about the guys in the band. And just the decent human beings that they are on a very basic level. Sure. Yeah. And I think that just extends back to Steve and the people that Steve surrounds himself with, you know, find somebody other than maybe Jonathan David Brown that, that Steve ever worked with that wound up having a really ugly turn of events come to the, you know? Yeah. And I think part of that is just Steve set such a great example just period. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. just in the way he lives his life. Yeah. But. Yeah. And 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 it's carried through through the Squint label, through the films, through the all the film projects. Yeah, there it, it is. Uh, we were joking. I I mean, I started going in 93 was my first time I went to Nashville and the first time I went to GMA. And uh and again, as much as I loved and I do, I still did the, all the free stuff, which was awesome because that <laughs> that dissipated uh, over 16 years of going to those conventions. Um, but we, we, we joke about it and I've joked about the people recently. I said, you know, remember that line in Star Wars about, uh, Moss Eisley, the, uh, wretched hive of scum and villainy. I said that sometimes that was GMA, <laughs> not all, not all the time, not all the time, because I have, I, I speak to friends that I met there in 93. Uh, there's some that I talk to almost every day. And I made some really solid friendships, but once I learned how to cut through the schmoozing and just to kill like my own self, <laughs> my own tendency to schmooze and actually have real conversations with people, that's when my GMA experience changed. Yeah. And I, and I made lifelong friendships there, uh, you know, and in, in solidified a lot of friendships for sure. And, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, that's the way we describe it. It was like, we loved it there and we had a blast, but it was a wretched hive of scum and villainy <laughs> in many ways. And, you know, I loved when Steve came back for the, I predict the clone tour and he stood up and said, uh, you know, um, we goodbye to the music, musician cemetery of America. And I thought that was beautiful. That was again, unchained. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. And I'm going to say it loud and proud. You know, Chagall used to do a cover of Working for MCA by Leonard Skinnerd. Okay. As a uh, sort of a tongue-in-cheek middle finger. Right. Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, 
yeah, change Mus- off. Musicians and filmmakers have a lot of power. So you don't, <laughs> you want to be careful how you treat them because it'll come out one way or the other. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. No, that is this, the undertaking that you've done is extremely exciting uh, on so many levels because history is important. And I think that newer artists need to see what it took to be a band in the nineties and the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands. And we don't want those lessons to be lost for sure. The idea of having to put in your hours and having to, you know, win over an audience. Absolutely. Which certainly uh, something that Steve and Chagall certainly learned uh, over the years in, in creating a show that people would still talk about years and years later. And the idea that people are still talking about Chagall Guevara is, is impressive. And with that being said, people are going to be talking about them even more when their yeah. live album comes out. Yes, absolutely. And, and, that is, and is there a date on that? Are they, is there? So there's no specific date set. Mike mm-hmm. Mead is sort of the one who's the driving force behind that. He's the drummer. Okay. He sent out an email a couple of months before COVID hit that said, what is the point of painting a picture if you're just going to stick it in the attic? Yes. He's like, we've been sitting on this for 30 years and we've continually fallen back on the excuse that this concert was filmed and we've lost all the footage. We can't put it out without the footage. Yes, we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Russ Long mixed it. So he was banner, he was banner man for those folks that are familiar with the music video. Right, right. And the legendary Russ Long. Yes. Yeah. I'm actually speaking to him tomorrow. Or not oh. tomorrow, Saturday. Oh, I loved. I saw him. I saw him last time I was in town, and he's. I love that guy. He's he awesome. Is, yeah. He is a. He is not the tallest human being in the world, but he is very tall in stature. Absolutely, in terms of his talent is <laughs> through the roof. Absolutely, and I think when uh, when I was when I was looking at all the stuff that is going into this release of the live album, I mean they're wanting to do this the right way for the fans. It's mm-hmm. not it's not going to be something where there's going to be very much if any money charged. I think the idea is to just put it out digitally yeah. and then and then do a vinyl release for those that want that. Oh, that's cool. That is very cool. But, you know, as far as digital uh, a digital release goes, it very well may be a free digital release. I'm not positive on that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But they want to they want to get it in people's hands. Absolutely. 30 and years I, is long enough to wait. I can assure everybody it is way better than you think it is. So what can we expect uh, this Monday? Just a, just an explosion of, of information. I think on Monday there's going to be an introductory video that I'm going to put up first that's going to kind of in less than three minutes explain mm-hmm. exactly what's going to be coming. And then after that it's going to be early stuff. There's going to be some concerts from the early days. I've got you know a concert from October of 83 where he debuts Meltdown. Awesome. There's going to be some videos. There's a great, very hilarious video from the transatlantic tour where Steve Taylor and Sheila Walsh went around the U S and the UK and did shows. And it was a video that they produced to send out to different youth groups and different places in different cities that might be a little bit on the fence about this kind of music. And it's got this really stuffy guy in like a, sweater vest talking about i know it's difficult to understand the words to a song like meltdown but they do actually have meaning and it's it is an absolute trip you just you watch it and you think my goodness was there ever really a time where this was 
something that people debated. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. But right there it is. Well, it, it's like, it's funny that you say that because there was a time when Chagall had to explain what they were doing. Like yep. it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it, 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 now a band like Switchfoot says, we're going to make music for everybody. Yep. Right. But the only reason that they can do that now is because a band like Chagall and other artists before them kind of took the hits for saying, look, we're, we want to sing to everybody. We don't want to sing to just a small group of people. If we're mission minded, then we're going to the mission goes to everywhere. And and again, I remember Chagall having to explain on so many levels what they were doing and and how this wasn't you know uh rock star fantasy but it was a, a need to reach out to people absolutely so it's, it's not hard to imagine the time when you had to explain yourself like in a video like that right like it's, oh yeah 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 but uh and, and some still do to be honest i mean there's there's still some people that feel that they need to have justification for writing a song about uh a love song or a song about going on a trip like where's the spiritual justification but fortunately those things are ebbing and ebbing and disappearing more and more each day I think especially you know the younger generation they just they don't care about that kind of thing exactly just, yeah they just they just want something that's real yep you absolutely know, not, not every single moment of your life is on bended knee exactly exactly yeah some yeah. other things but just to, to tell you some other things are, that are going to be coming to the archive I have a master copy of Limelight the film, <laughs> and I have transferred that, and I'm I've cleaned it up. Right, I've, I've enhanced the audio. I am taking all of Steve's old video albums, mm -hmm. and I am digitizing them, cleaning them up, and I am replacing the audio from the VHS with fully lossless audio rips directly oh from my. the CDs. Wow! Because right now there are copies out there on YouTube, but. They're, they're, yeah, they're not in the most pristine state. No. And these videos, for the most part, maybe the maybe not the Lifeboat video, but most of these videos are actually good videos. And they deserve, just on a very, not even on a spiritual level, just on an artistic level, they just right. deserve yeah. to be preserved because they're just good videos. Absolutely. Do you want to know what the longest uh, nine-hour drive of my life was? Absolutely, I do. I went to Creation 88. And, which took place in 1988, surprisingly. Oh, and yeah. uh, part of the reason I, you know, we convinced our parents to let us drive, you know, nine hours to Pennsylvania was because Steve was playing. And uh, what was nice was we discovered a whole bunch of bands when we got there. But uh, I convinced my parents to let us go take their car and go nine hours uh, by ourselves, uh, partially because Steve was going to play this festival. And <laughs> this was the festival where, where they released the I Predict 1990 video package the, yeah. the, the vhs mm -hmm. and it was the longest drive home <laughs> because i went i've got it here but i don't have a vcr in my car and so they they, they weren't doing that in those days <laughs> an actual vcr inside the vehicle so i remember every minute was like I, I got to watch this thing. Like I, I bought it sight unseen. I hope it's good, but I know it's going to be good, but I, I, I can't actually watch the thing until I get home. I don't even think I said hi to my parents, to be honest. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I just walked in threw whatever they were watching out onto the floor. And I threw that tape in and watched it uh, for the first time. And, but it, 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 it was torture driving home on that trip because I knew I couldn't just throw it in the tape player and listen to it. So, oh, just so you that, know, again, uh, you and I speak the same language, which is great. 
that well, was because what you're telling me is that that I predict that video package is going to be available on the archive as well. It is. It's going to be available. I'm going to say that one will probably hit probably the end of this month or the beginning of next month. Okay. Uh, I know that the Chagall stuff is going to hit end of July, beginning of August. That's great. And wow. yeah, there's just, there's so there's many pieces. So much I mean, stuff. <laughs> and some of it is just random little nuggets. And you're like, oh, okay. I don't even know why that's worth saving. But right, if, right. if I've got it, it's going up there. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's because Steve was studied film is that you know because he seemed to sounds like he archived and and recorded everything from early days i think a lot of the early recordings especially the early concerts that are on audio cassette were actually recorded by steve's manager at the time robbie marshall okay who was quite the pack rat and i got a whole lot of stuff years and years ago from him uh that's a whole other story we don't need to get into but uh <laughs> sure. uh so he would record these things whenever he would be at a show for preservation. Cause he is a hardcore, he's a hardcore Beatles fan and okay, my, yep. his Beatles collection is insane. Wow. And he did just a small fraction of that sort of obsessive behavior with Steve's early stuff. And the result is this gargantuan early documentation of his, you know, clone shows. Right. And, you know, I think when it comes to video stuff, Steve, Yes, he's a filmmaker, but I don't, you know, a lot of the stuff I think fans sent to Steve or like the Chagall stuff, that stuff he had and it was professionally shot because those were the biggest shows that they did. Right. Yeah. And every single piece of this footage, the Chagall footage that I've gone through, I recognize it from the Murder in the Big House promo video. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so I think it was mostly stuff that he saved to use for something of that nature. I'm sure to some degree it was stuff that he wanted to have for posterity, but yeah, you know, well, and, and it's funny too, because like a show like Cornerstone, Cornerstone 91, you would want, because you had, that's, that's your people. Yep. Right? The, 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 the anticipation level was so high. I remember in that crowd that day, the anticipation level was so high because it's like, you're going to see something you've never seen before. And, and, and again, you want to film when you've got your people in the audience for sure. And it's, you know, when you look at these shows, these live shows, sometimes, you know, when you have a professionally recorded show, the audio is purely from the soundboard and you can't hear the audience that well. Right. So it, it kind of sounds like they're just performing in a studio, mm -hmm. but on some of these cornerstone festivals my goodness you can hear the crowd through the stage mics which sure, yeah which says something it's 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 a lot of fun to go back and relive some of these memories and some of the stuff i missed out on getting to see in person so i can go back and live vicariously through videotape absolutely absolutely and there's a there's a possibility that some of my footage may wind up as part of the archive as well oh it's not a possibility it's a definite fact <laughs> oh my there oh is my my shaky cam Yes, you're shaky, Kim, but hey, you can balance that out by the fact that you were on stage during Still Know Your Number by Heart when Chagall played, and, and there's clear shots of your face. So oh, that's, yeah, that's, take, that's, uh, that it's not, it won't even be like a deep fake video. It's the real thing. So take, I, was, take, I was there. Take the good with the bad on that. I, one, I absolutely, suppose. absolutely. You know, you take the good, you take the bad, which really leads to my next question. <laughs> yes. Is there, are there multiple copies of Good Girl? You know, Steve has for many years promised me the good girl demo. Okay. And he has yet to send that to me. Wasn't in the 31 pound box. 
It was not, but he also just moved to a new house. He and okay. Debbie, he and Debbie moved into a new house right as COVID nineteen was hitting. Okay, and so the stuff that he sent me was the stuff that is or was, I should say, readily available right on top. Got it. Yeah. And you know, when somebody sends you a thirty-one pound box of stuff from their archive, that there's absolutely no logical reason that they <laughs> should send you. Right. <laughs> you don't really want to be like, yeah. By no, the way, wait a you minute. Want- yeah. Hey, hey, by the way, Steve, uh, that other stuff isn't in here. <laughs> you said good girl would be in here. What's right. going on? So maybe after maybe after I get all this stuff digitized and I mail it back, I'll I'll uh, connect with him again. And be like, oh, hey, yeah. No, you I, know. I, I'd be happy to get every every possible vocal take of of uh, good girl uh, that, uh, you know, Blair from Facts of Life doing an album. How much how much better and Steve Taylor involved? How much better could life be really? I, well, they dated for a while. That's what uh, I heard. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I mean, can you imagine that the star power of that couple? If they oh, would have, yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to go into any church within you know a thousand mile <laughs> radius of Nashville without getting mobbed. It's true. And if they hung out with Kirk Cameron, forget it. They, <laughs> yeah, don't get it. Right? Never be able to leave the house, <laughs> the full house. You know. There was yeah, a no. There is a just a tremendous amount of great stuff that's coming and some really embarrassingly bad stuff too. There is a tape. It's almost like diving into the Nixon Watergate tapes where <laughs> Wow, that is a, well, that is quite the yeah, I like that. That's a great saying, comparison. Well like well in this specific instance, because there's a segment on this tape that's been erased, but you can faintly hear what used to be there. Okay. And it's Steve rehearsing the voice of Mrs. Arian. For lifeboat, so so I am I am trying with all of my might to digitally restore this as yes. best I can. I may have to send this off to like the Library of Congress or something to to have them use their super fancy stuffs to get it out because it's the little bits that I can hear are priceless. It's it's you know again coming from my background and everything else, the fact that Steve would call for accountability using his music. Um, and I don't think he ever, again, I never thought that he was using it as a tool. Like there were a lot of bands from that era that went, well, we're doing music, but it's a tool to uh, reach people or to, you know, whatever. I don't, he seemed to always take music seriously as far as the pursuit of excellence in his music. But the the lyrical content was really, to me, what keeps me a fan because it still holds up like the, the, the call to accountability of a song like lifeboat that says, wait a minute, why are we using this to judge people? Or um, we don't need no color code or, you know, all those kind of songs that, that were, you know, calling people out on their stuff. And I know that Steve did an awful lot of songwriting. Like I know he wrote on the Fritz in some ways to sort of, create a barrier for him sort of like listen if you sing about this and then you do some of the same stuff that you're singing about right there's there's no way you could live this down exactly yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why i I, i've already said it before but why i don't think he really belonged in the ccm world because yeah i agree and there was a a tremendous amount of backlash that he got just for being completely and totally honest and you know when i would go around to perfect foil shows with my brothers Mm-hmm. there would be a large number of people there that had no religious affiliation whatsoever or right. 
people like myself um, that grew up in the church and then left and they still come to see Steve Taylor because even though they might not necessarily agree with every single thing, mm. the man the man spoke with integrity. The yeah. man spoke from a place of honesty, and the man was not compromising his beliefs in order to sell records. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes, he would have he would have changed things certainly for the CCM industry that would have led to increased record sales and more security and all those kind of things, oh, and absolutely. the elusive, the elusive tour bus that he always wanted for sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But uh, no, it, it, when I listen to, here's, here's a song that has special resonance in the last four years for me. Uh, it's a personal thing. Yep. When I listen to it, it's a personal thing. And I go, oh my goodness, this, this song that was written in 84, 85 uh, mm. was a template for <laughs> somebody that was trying to deny or hide or you know, couch their beliefs in order to get elected. I went, Oh my goodness, that, uh, that has special, special significance for me, which most songs from that era don't carry that same kind of weight, but you know, you can use the word prophetic. You can use the word, uh, you think you can use a lot of words, but that is, you know, when a song is timely 30 years later, that's an impressive thing. And if you go through Steve's archives, there's an awful lot of stuff that still yeah. at least yeah. lyrically holds up, you know, Absolutely. I yeah. I don't know. I don't know how well Sven Gali did uh, sonically uh, in in terms of aging, but right. But, but a lot of the stuff. That, yeah. Yeah. I had to. Uh, again, you'll you'll appreciate this. Uh, in Canada, release dates were always anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks later. Mm-hmm. So if there was a release date of May for an album, we'd get it in June or July at the earliest. Okay. And the beautiful thing about living in a border city oh. <laughs> is that you don't have to wait. <laughs> so at least on three of Steve's release dates, uh, I remember leaving class. I, I was t- taking classes at the University of Windsor, which is right by the bridge. I would uh, finish a class, say at 11 o'clock, I would jump in my car. I would drive over to the gospel bookstore in downtown Detroit, and I would be back for class by 1230. Oh, which was awesome because I was also DJing and uh, I was DJing at a roller rink and I would come in with new music <laughs> long before you could actually get it in the stores in Canada. It was, it was amazing. But yes, I made special trips to get, uh, I predict, I remember that I think on the Fritz, I was still new, a new fan uh, and squint. I drove over to Detroit to get squint and I, st- <laughs> I bugged, this one particular store for about six months asking for Chagall Guevara. And they kept looking at me like I was crazy. Like I'd made up this word. <laughs> it was like, no, there's a band called Chagall Guevara because you couldn't even get release dates back then. Sure. Solid. And I remember going in uh, probably every weekend. Is it out yet? Is it out yet? Is it out yet? I was, that was, that was Bart Simpson just kicking the back <laughs> of the chair. Is it out yet? But, they, but every time I said the word, and it was always a different salesperson, they would look at me like I was like I had two heads because Chagall Guevara. Yeah, you know who they are, don't you? No, we, no, no. You're, you're making that up, sir. I'm sorry. You've got to leave. <laughs> so, yeah, there are benefits to living in a border city, and certainly that was one of them. Well, would you be able to do that now? Because now you need a passport, don't you? <laughs> you do need a passport, but now the borders are actually closed. So, Oh, yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I can see Detroit almost from my house, but I can't go there, at least till the beginning of August. 
Can you smell the amazing pizza? Uh, all, all the wonderful things in Detroit? Yeah. Oh, like my the, goodness. Like, uh, do, you, do you know about the Detroit pizzas? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. See, we understand each other. Yeah. It's like if I go to Detroit, and yes. I've been there a few times, if I go there and I do not eat a Detroit-style pizza, I feel like I've <laughs> completely wasted my time. There's Buddies. Yes, there that's my is. that's my favorite. Is Buddy's your favorite? Okay, that's my favorite. Yeah, very good. Yeah, uh, Buscemi's is another one. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of the uh, Shields. Shields is Shields is, is another uh, famous Detroit pizza. But I didn't understand this until recently. And I am I could eat. I've eaten pizza four times a day in my life on several sure. occasions. Uh, yesterday, I probably had pizza for breakfast and lunch, and I didn't realize that square pizza was a Detroit thing. Yeah. That started here. I, I I did not know that until maybe last year. I yeah, I can't tell you how many times my brothers and I, when we would go around for perfect foil shows, we would plan our route based on what kind of I wouldn't call it ethnic pizza, but what sort of regional pizza we could get. Oh. Well, well, you know, because we would go to a Soul Fest, which is in New Hampshire. Okay. And that's yep. a that, that's a twenty four hour drive straight through from where you're at. From where we're at. Okay. And we would be like, you know, if we come back, if we go through New York City, we can get New York style pizza. And then if we cut across and we, instead of going through Indianapolis, we go up and go through Detroit. We can get Detroit style pizza. <laughs> and we can come through Chicago on the way down. Yeah. Which leads me to wonder, did you go for the tour or did you go for the pizza? Or is it a mixture of both? Well, uh I'm going to have to plead the fifth on that one. That's right. I, I think that's, a, I think that's, a, as your attorney, I think that's a wise choice. Well, thank you. <laughs> Wait, you're my attorney. What, how much is your retainer? Uh, it's already taken care of. Oh, Sorry. Good. It's, it's, yeah. There's a mysterious benefactor that took care of it for you. Oh, well, uh, awesome. But yeah, you can go ahead and plead the fifth because uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't answer that one. Come to think of it. Yeah, but probably. that, that sounds, that sounds wonderful to be able to see that tour in multiple cities and enjoy pizza from across the great USA. That's of course it couldn't be any better than that for sure. That's right. That is great. Yes. I mean, my gosh, you, you know, buddy's pizza. That's impressive all by itself. Well, I'm a little more cultured than, uh, than you might think a Rube from Iowa would be. <laughs> I would never Rube from Iowa is never a <laughs> phrase that I would use to describe you, sir. Don't oh, worry about that. Thank you. <laughs> well, very cool. Is there anything else? Anything else we didn't cover? I mean, not that I can really think of. You know, the it's releasing on Monday, June 15th. Mark your calendars. There's going to be a, a torrent of activity coming over the you know, the weeks and months ahead. Anytime that I get a new piece, I will put it in the archive. Uh, I am curious as to what the reaction of some folks is going to be to some of this stuff. Sure, and yeah. I'm very much excited to to get to kind of share these little nuggets of joy that I've been sitting on for a little while. And you've been posting stuff for years. What's been your favorite fan reaction to something that you posted? Well, I mean, I'm not just saying this cause I'm, I'm talking to you, but legitimately when you were like, Oh my gosh, that's me up on stage at Quarterstone. I've been oh. wanting to see this footage for years uh, with Chagall. That was pretty great. I had a, I had a gentleman one time send me a message saying that, you know, I was at this show it was with my dad and my dad like passed away a couple of days after the show unexpectedly. Right. Um, and for him to see that meant a lot to him. Hmm. And there's just, and there's been so many little 
just little notes that people have sent me over the years. It, it's I don't particularly look for people to pat me on the back and say, good job, buddy. I just want to share this stuff. But it is yeah. nice when I'm able to know that what I'm doing is making somebody happy, you know? It absolutely does. You're making people happy by archiving. And, and again, the memories that go with the shows that people have attended, you know, that you remember where you were in that moment. You remember probably what you, the pizza you had that day. You probably remember the people you were with. And that's the beauty of being able to post an archive like this on YouTube for everybody to see, because it's going to hit people in different ways based on their connection to those shows and to the, to the videos. There is absolute 100% truth to that. And I will say there are some things that I have that a video or a YouTube channel doesn't really allow me to share. Mm -hmm. So I haven't completely and totally decided to do this for sure, but I am seriously considering building a Steve Taylor archive website that will feature the print materials and, you know, unused album cover art and, photos and things from that from years gone by just because mm -hmm. i feel like that stuff needs to see the light of day too absolutely, absolutely. we'll see what the, we'll see what the response to the youtube channel is first though absolutely and, and like i said i'll go through my archives of what i've got and i will send you anything that i'm again i'm still shocked that there might be something that you don't have i'm very <laughs> very inside very happy about that <laughs> there's at least one thing <laughs> one thing that i've identified on this call which is great but absolutely. i will make sure anything that i've got promo stuff from GMA and all that kind of stuff. I will make sure I get to, to you uh, because I know you're taking good care of it. And if anybody is listening or if anybody sees something on the, on the channel and it strikes a memory, let me know. And if you want a, a hard copy of it, I can probably arrange for that to be sent to you wow. as well. Yes. And, and if you are, somebody who has something that you would like to share, please send it my way or post it yourself. I, I, you know, whatever you would prefer to do, but I would be happy to digitize any old videotape you have, no matter how crappy you think it is. Uh, I mean, I, I just digitized a video of a, an episode of all my children that has Chagall Guevara music on it. Like the old, <laughs> really? Yes. The old soap opera. Yes. So, I mean, if you think, even if you think it is a completely, useless or stupid little piece of video even if it's five minutes that you shot on a vhs 30 years ago if you want to share it please do i'd be happy to clean it up and send you back a hard copy along with your original that sounds fantastic that, that's quite an offer and uh i would encourage everyone to take him up on that that sounds great and what's nice too is that chagall guevara has effectively outlived all my children that, that is great <laughs> that is great news by itself <laughs> Well, I have one more, one more phrase that I want to see what, how it resonates. Joe's sure. distributing. Joe's distributing. <laughs> the, the, will we, will the, we see that? That will be on there. Yes. Oh, beautiful. The, the student film. Yes. The student film. Yes. Awesome. I actually, I have some, uh, the others, one of the other student films that he did was called baby talk. And right. Yes. And I have some slides that I've digitized from that particular shoot. <laughs> there's actually one on the launch trailer where if you slow it down and you look at the pictures, there's one to Steve. He's leaning on the front of this Mustang with this like, oh yeah, I am so cool. Like, it's 1980. I'm in front of a Mustang. I'm wearing a tan leisure suit. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some pretty great pictures from that that I'll post as well. There is. And again, the, the closest thing I can use to describe 
those student films and not just the student films, but every video project that Steve's been a part of. Uh, I always say I can't watch a Steve Taylor directed video just once. No, nope. like he, he's there's so much in it that I have to rewind it back at the time or go back at the beginning and start over again because there's there's so much in there. You look at the on the Fritz video. Yeah, uh, I I was at the the in Nashville at GMA. They premiered that video for us at a dinner, and our jaws just dropped because that was a song we had known for 10, 12 years, but to hear the live the liver version of it was, and to see the video that went with it was just, just jaw dropping. That's the only way I can describe it. But yeah, every video project that he's ever been involved with, I have to watch at least twice, but probably 15 times, you know, in the first day, because he really had a sense has, sorry, has a sense of humor. And uh, the humor always comes through. And the the closest thing I can use to describe is Steve Martin did a a series uh, of his NBC TV shows. And if you watch something like Joe's distributing or you watch baby talk, that sense of humor is very similar to what Steve Martin did when they gave him a lot of money to make these specials. And I think probably 20 people actually watched them when they were on, but, (laughs) but the sense of humor just carries through. And it, it, there was, there were a lot of similarities to what Steve Martin and the two Steves did that uh, again, didn't really fit the Christian music mold on any level. So I'm glad that you're taking good care of this stuff. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm glad that you're one of the people in my neighborhood. Hey, I love living in your neighborhood. I I feel like I'm officially, unofficially Canadian now. You absolutely are. Yeah, the passport is in the mail. You know, I have maple trees outside my house, so you know, I you, guess you probably know more about Canada Canada than I do. So I think I think you qualify. <laughs> oh well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have a great night again. We're looking forward to Monday and we'll make sure we get the word out so that everybody in our neighborhood visits the archive. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful night yourself. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Taylor. And I'd like all of you right now, wherever you are, to just take the hand of the person next to you, give it a little squeeze and say, you're special.
Goodbye. Typical, Typical barrister. barrister.